So today is Genesis chapter 44, like we mentioned. This is one of those, it's kind of a transitional passage. There's not a ton of things that happen in it, and it's, a, it's kind of a really awkward situation, and, and like we look at it. And the first word that comes to mind from like a legal perspective is entrapment. And we're going to see that go on in here. But most people, when they preach this, they preach like Genesis 43, 44, 45. They just throw them all in one big box. And they're like, this is what we're preaching. So bear with me as we go through this. And we're going to focus on forgiveness, for sure. But we're going to focus on it maybe from a little bit different perspective than, uh, than what we normally do. So last week, Manny preached... How many people got to hear that one? A couple, couple of you? And he focused on this process. He, you know, he talked a little bit about coming to repentance, right? And our relationship with God and talking about that in light of the events with Joseph and his brothers. And we are also going to focus on Joseph and his brothers, but a lot more focus on the brothers, and I don't want us to forget that the Bible is... Okay, that's annoying me. It's probably annoying you more. Okay. The Bible's a story, right? Especially in the Old Testament, we see a narrative. We see layers upon layers upon layers of story that God puts into this. And we're going to see that here as well. In the New Testament, we think of it less like a story because you have all these letters where... An apostle is communicating to a church, and they're having a conversation, and they're going back and forth. Uh, but we still have that story, because like Acts, right? It lays out this whole story in the New Testament of what the church is doing. And that story didn't end when the scripture was complete. It continues on. It continues on through us, even us today. Now we're going to talk about and concentrate on the brothers like I said, it's about forgiveness, but we're not going to do this. We will be coming at this from the angle of the one doing the wrong as opposed to the one who's wronged, if that makes sense. The focus is going to be on those that have committed trespasses against somebody else, and we're going to dive into that because we know already that Joseph has all the right in the world to be angry at his brothers. He also has the power to like dish out punishment if he wants to, but he doesn't do that. So what, do, what, is, a, what is he doing, and why is he doing it in this passage as we get into it? Because it's a little odd. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to go back to the original transgression of Joseph against, that his brothers perpetrated against him. So we're, we're going to jump back into Genesis 37. Because we want to make sure we have a good understanding of all the things they did to Joseph and what that was. Genesis 37, chapter 2, and I'm reading out of the ESV. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So we remember that Joseph was kind of in charge. Even though he was 17, his dad gave him the cool coat, which means it was a striped coat. He was the overseer, and he sent him out, and he brought back a bad report. 
Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was a son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors or a striped coat in the Hebrew. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So the first thing is they hate him because their dad shows ridiculous levels of favoritism, which I don't recommend as a parent. You shouldn't do that to your kids. So in Genesis 37, 5, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So now we have more hate on top of the first hate. Genesis 37, 8, his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Genesis 37, 11, and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So we see we have hatred, and we have jealousy, and it's built up over time, over the course of years. And then in Genesis 37, 18 is when it comes to fruition. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Yeah, that's good family relations. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come on now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Now, as a side note, who gave Joseph those dreams? Anybody, God, right? So when these guys do not respect the dreams, and they do not want to listen to the dreams, who is it that they're rejecting? They're not rejecting Joseph. I mean, they are, but that's not the real rejection that they're, t they're they're bringing to bear here. And they don't really get that. And they also, this, this, that a fierce animal has devoured him and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. That's the beginning of the lie that they tell for the next close to 40 years. Verse 21, but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. Do not lay a hand on him. And he has an ulterior motive that he might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So one brother out of all of them says, okay, I'm going to rescue him. So he talks them into not killing him off, just throw him in a pit so he can come back later. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat after a hard day's work, throwing their brother into a pit. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let us not lay our hand upon him, for he's our brother our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. So we have Reuben first, and then we have Judah. So they were only two out of the ten that had any good things that they wanted to do, even though it wasn't great things. Selling them into slavery versus killing them is still not great. However, Benjamin wasn't here. He was probably, at the most, he was ten years old. He might have been younger. There was some controversy over whether he was born after this, because it says in here Joseph was... The, Jacob said, he's the son of my old age, but Benjamin was born later. 
but other people say, no, he was already born. So at the most, he was 10 years old. Verse 28, then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy's gone, and where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And when they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, and this, this is really like passive and, you know, hey, dad, we found this robe. Is it Joseph's? We're not sure, right? They're just kind of like not really, you know, putting it out there. They're just letting him make his own conclusion. And this is the lie, the passive lie that they make up. And Joseph says, I'm sorry, Jacob says, and he identifies it, and he said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and, and mourned for his son many days. And all of his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him. So these guys are now trying to comfort their father, even though they're the ones that did it. But he refused to be comforted. No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Meanwhile, verse 36, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So again, we have Reuben and Judah are the only ones that didn't really want to kill him. And he gets sold into slavery. But in summary, they hated his dreams. They hated him. They were jealous of him. They planned to murder him. They sold him into slavery, and they lied to everyone about what happened for close to 40 years, like I said. And we'll see them still telling this lie in this narrative at this time. So that's a summary of all the bad things that the brothers did to Joseph. So now let's get into our text in chapter 44. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. He is Joseph's steward, the head of his household. And remember what happened last time. This is the second time the brothers have come back to get more food. And they had to bring Benjamin with them this time. And now they're getting ready to go back to the land of Canaan to bring all the food back. And Joseph says, last time, remember, he filled their sacks up, and then he put their money back in the mouths of the sack. And so when they got home, they were a little bit freaked out that this happened. And then they brought it back with them when they came this time. Well, now, not only is he telling them to put the money back, he says, take my silver cup and put it back in there as well in Benjamin's bag. So verse 3, as soon as the, it was, as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They'd gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Okay, so this is where the entrapment situation comes in, right? He, puts, he tells his steward to put the cup in Benjamin's bag. Then he sends his troops and his steward to them. And then the guy confronts them. 
and says, what have you done? This is my master's super special divination cup, which we'll talk about. How could you steal that from him? And the guy who's saying this to them is the guy who put it in the bag, right? Now we know from all the cop shows that we all watch that it's okay for the police to lie straight to your face in interrogation. That's what's happening right here. And when you do things like this, we look at it and like, this is messed up. He's literally toying with them right now. He's got an agenda. And so what is that agenda? And is it something that God is pleased with? This is what we, when we read the scripture, we have to look at that and we say, this is, no way we can say that this makes sense that like we would do this and, and it would be okay for us to do this. Verse six. So when he overtook them, he spoke these words and they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then would we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. So he's, you know, they're like, hey, we didn't do it. So if you find it, kill us, right? Like totally, uh, you know, completely convinced we did not do this. We know we didn't do it. There's no, there's no issues here. And if we hearken back to Jacob, this same thing happened when Rachel had stolen the household gods, and Jacob is all mad because his father-in-law shows up um, and says, you stole my household gods, and he's like, hey, if you find them, you, you can kill me, right? Same kind of idea. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant. So it's not really like you said. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to take the one who has the cup. He's going to be my servant. The rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest. So he's going to draw out all the suspense, because he knows where it is already. Could have went just right to it. But he's going to start with the eldest and work his way down to baby Benjamin. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes. Every man loaded his donkey. They returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? So let's talk about divination. Divination is the occult practice of getting information from the divine to give it to the non-divine. That's what divination is. Sorry, this is really annoying. I'm not sure what's going on there, but okay. Does Joseph practice divination? Yay, nay? No, he does not. He gets visions from God. He gets them directly from the source but the Egyptians, because of the occult nature of their whole society and the fact that Joseph is number two in the kingdom, that's what they assumed he was doing. They assumed he was practicing divination because he knew what was going to happen in the future. And he still had his cup, and he's being very careful about what he says. And he says in verse 15, he says, Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination. 
So they, they don't know who he is, and they think he's part of the Egyptian culture. And so when he says, someone like me can practice divination, he means someone in my position can definitely do this and is going to know when you guys stole things. So he's still playing this role. He's still staying in the background and not letting them know who he is while he's testing them. But Joseph was actually able to perform above any of their standards, just like when he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. None of the magicians of Pharaoh's court could do it. None of them had an idea of what was happening. But God gave him the power to do it. So let's go to verse 16. A man, and, and Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and also in whose hand the cup has been found. Now, again, they didn't do anything wrong in this case. But Judah says that God has found out their guilt, and he throws Benjamin in there as well because the cup was found in his sack. But he is saying, you know, we're all guilty because, as he's mentioned before, they think these bad things are happening to them because of what they did to their brother Joseph. Right? So they've been thinking about this. It's on their minds all the time as time has gone on. Verse 17, but he said, far be it for me that I should do so. This is Joseph speaking. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found should be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. And then Judah went up to him and said, oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear and let not your anger burn against your servant, for, he, for you are like Pharaoh himself. Now when he says, in my Lord's ear, the Hebrew term that's used there basically means whisper very quietly, as an aside, tell a secret. So he's basically saying, all right, I want to talk to you, and I don't want anyone else to hear. And do you remember what Joseph's name is in Egypt right now? Zaphonath Paniah. Good job, Johnny. He gets a gold star today. You guys can shake his hand after the service. Zaphonath Pania. Great name. You guys should name your kids that. I call him Zaffy for short. Verse 19. So now what we have here is Judah basically recounting what's happened in the past already and the conversations that Joseph has had with them and why they're in this situation right now. So he says, My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, a child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Do they actually know if Joseph is dead? No. They don't know. They have no idea what happened to Joseph. But the lie that they told their father that they let him believe because of the blood-covered or the blood-covered coat is a lie they're still telling. So right now they're in with the second most powerful man in Egypt trying to bargain for the lives of their brother and themselves and they're still telling this lie. He was dead. No, he's not. Well, at the very least, you have no idea because the last time you saw him he was alive. He went to the slavers. Verse 21, Judah is continuing to recount this. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, 
that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And then our father said, go again, buy us a little food. And we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. And if you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you'll bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. So Judah's recounting all of this story back to Joseph. And Jacob is show, still showing massive favoritism. He's basically saying, I only have two sons. One of them's dead. The rest of you guys, I don't know what you are, but I don't, I don't really have any time for you. And he's basically saying that he's going to die, right? Jacob is saying, if I lose Benjamin, I'm going down in evil to Sheol. Sheol is the underworld. It's not just the grave. It has other connotations in the scriptures. So that's, that's basically what he's, what he's saying. So verse 30 continues on. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, the boy's not with us. Then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Now, this passage is a little hard to, to read through just because of the ridiculous levels of respect that Judah is using in a language. He's saying, your servant himself, your servant my father, like every, every person he references in relation to this, he's basically saying, we're all your servants, every single one of us. Whatever you say goes, we are your servants. Now, this is the end of this chapter. Like I said, this is very transitional. And so now we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what we think is going on here. Everything that Joseph has done, I believe, has been a test. He is testing his brothers to find out what sort of men they are and how they felt about what they did to their brother back in the day. He's demonstrating some things to them that should sound familiar to what we read earlier. So currently, they are being wrongfully accused. They are not believed when they're telling the truth. They are forcefully taken to places they did not want to go. They have no control over their own comings and goings. They're under the power of someone greater. They desire to control their own future and protect their loved ones, but that power has been stripped from them. So now what they're getting is a real idea of what they actually have to repent from if they should ever truly seek Joseph's forgiveness. 
All of those things they did to Joseph. They stripped him of his free will. They stripped him of his freedom. They stripped him of his family. They stripped him of any choice in his life except to be a slave and be a servant, right? That's what they did to him. And in their hearts, they wanted to kill him. So this is, this is worse than a Jerry Springer show. So as Manny pointed out last week, and we see here, they are starting via Judah, because Judah is the one who's communicating all this, to get the idea that God is against them and he's bringing all this out. But they still have not repented for what they did. They're still telling the lie. And when we have wronged somebody, I mean, has anybody in this room wronged somebody to that level in your life? I mean, don't, don't answer that. I don't want to know. <laughs> I personally have not done something to that level. Because it's pretty extreme. But when we have wronged somebody... We desire forgiveness. How many people like to be forgiven when you've done something bad to somebody, right? We all like to be forgiven. Why? I mean, I would like them to forget that it ever happened. Just pretend it's all okay. So in, in neuropsychology, there's this thing called the joy connection. Has anybody ever heard of that? So when you make face-to-face -face contact with someone else and you look each other in the eye, a cycle happens about six times a second. It goes back and forth, and you don't even consciously realize it. And this is that thing that happens is when you see someone that is happy to see you and is happy to be with you, you get this connection, and it makes you feel happy. You have a positive reaction. And when you look at someone and they see you and you don't know each other, then there's no, that connection isn't there, but it's not negative. But when you have a problem with someone, or they have a problem with you, you immediate, your brain immediately knows it within a second that something's wrong. And if you've hurt someone and, and you know it, you know why. But how many of us in our marriages, and obviously I'm speaking from the perspective of the husband because I would never dare to speak from the perspective of the wife, but you come home and you had a hard day at work or whatever you did and your wife, whatever she's been doing, working and doing her thing, and I come home and I'm like, hey, babe, how's it going? It's good. What's wrong? Nothing. Everything's fine. Okay. Well, my brain already knows something's not right. This joy connection did not happen the way it normally does when I come home and I say hi. And she's like, hey, how's it going? And you see that and you're like, okay, cool. In this situation, it didn't happen that way. I've been married for 34 years. It's happened a lot of times that this didn't happen the way I wanted it to. And 99.99999% of the time, it's my fault. I admit this freely. Amen. Amen. That's right. So... I know something's wrong, but my wife doesn't want to share that with me until three or four hours later, right before we're getting ready to go to bed. And I'm like, are you sure something's not wrong? And then let's have a little bit of a discussion for a while before we go to bed. Okay, so you guys understand this, right? Have you experienced this connection that I'm talking about in your life? When you see someone and they're just, something's not right. And maybe they're not mad at you. They're just having a bad day. And you're like, are you okay? And they're like, yeah, everything's fine. And you know everything's not fine. 
Well, this is part of the process of forgiveness when you have wronged someone. You want that level of relationship to be restored between you. You want them to truly desire to be with you in community, just as you truly desire to want to be with them in community. This is the level you're looking for. How many people have heard the phrase, you know, the smile didn't reach their eyes? Right? That's where this comes from. When someone smiles at you, but their eyes don't match up, your brain already knows something's wrong. Maybe they're a psychopath. I don't know. But it should reach their eyes. Why is it not reaching their eyes? This is weird. Okay? Now, from the other direction, can you forgive someone if they don't apologize to you and they're not remorseful in any way? Yes, you can. Who's that for? It's for you. Why? So you don't feel bitterness and anger and let them control who you are. Because if you're angry at someone and they, they don't care what you think, or maybe they don't even know they did anything, you're upset and you're spending all this mental energy worrying about it, and the person that you're upset with doesn't even know. So literally, they, they're out, right? That's for you. But it, what does that not do? It helps you to deal with your own internal turmoil. It does not restore any relationship, right? And what, is, what does Jesus tell us? That when you have a problem with your brother, you're supposed to leave your gift at the altar and go make it right, right? So we can't always do that. And I'm not going to get into all the different kind of crazy situations that people have and unsafe people in your life and all that. But that's what he wants us to do, is try to make it right and revive the relationship. So all of this interaction that we've read about in this story with Joseph and his brothers is the culmination of 20-plus years of God working in their lives and Joseph's life and seeing the daily sorrow of their father, who has not gotten over this at all, he is still holding on to it as tight as he can with both fists. My son is dead, and I have one left. And the other ten can go do whatever they want. Now, so they, they're always thinking about what they did, because we saw that earlier in the previous chapters. That's what Judas says. He's like, oh, this is because of what we did to Joseph. This is why all these bad things are happening to us. So he's thinking of it. And this is like the biblical concept of karma. It doesn't last over multiple lives. It's what you do now. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. little King James quote for you there of Jesus, right? When you do things, there are consequences for the things you do. And it's going to take place in the here and now or in the judgment with God. So God is driving home a reality with them. When they do reconcile, they will have truly considered what they did and can even relate in a real way what Joseph went through, even though theirs is a much compressed time period. And they don't actually become slaves. Right now, the fear of that is hanging over their heads. But they don't actually have to become slaves. As a matter of fact, Joseph, channeling God's grace, basically makes things turn out quite nicely for them. 
Only that grace allows them to skip the actual rightful punishment and have a restored relationship with their brothers. I would say that it's incumbent on us when we have wronged someone and want to be forgiven that we need to truly spend the time and the energy listening to them and understanding the actual harm that our actions did. Like, really try to put ourselves in their shoes and figure out. I mean, I have been guilty of saying something to someone. One time I even said it from stage during a worship set, and I really upset someone in the congregation. I didn't intend to upset them. I didn't know I upset them until like a week later. Was I still guilty of upsetting them? Yeah, I was. And if I wanted that relationship to be restored, I needed to go say something about it and try to deal with that and make it better and ask them to forgive me for me being thoughtless in the moment. So getting that sense for what the forgiveness costs. What rights of judgment and rights of punishment does the injured party giving up in order to forgive us? Like, if I really wrong someone, they have some rights in there. And if they forgive me, they're saying, I'm not going to exercise those rights. I'm going to let you off the hook, so to speak. But you're on the hook by your own, your own, your own actions or your own statements, which I guess those are both actions. So there you go. And after we dwell on that for a little bit and think about that interaction, some of things that we have wronged, people in our own lives that we can remember that we have wronged, what rights of judgment does God give up for our sin? What wrongs have we done, do we now, will we commit against the Most High in all creation? Well, that's a trick question. God didn't give up any rights. He gave up a perfect son. So that judgment and that punishment was satisfied, and we still have a restored relationship with him. So you can't make a perfect comparison between our relationships and the process of asking someone for forgiveness to what is in heaven in our relationship with God. But there are a great deal of, of similarities in there. So pretty soon here, I'm going to pray and I'm going to have the worship team come up. But what I want us to think about as we're doing worship and as we are going through this process, what is the first thing that comes to mind when you think of you wronging someone? Can you think of a person that you have wronged in the past? And maybe it's all re restored, reconciled, Maybe all that happened, right? I'm not saying that we all are running around with tons of people in our background that we owe apologies to. That's not what I'm saying. But I want us to think about that. And I want, to, I want us to think about what was the process that, that I had to go through at that time to get forgiveness. How sincere was I? What was my goal? Was my goal to get rid of the pain and the difficulty between us? Or was my goal to actually seek restoration for what I did? Because just getting rid of the pain 
and the awkward situation and having that person just look at you and say, no, no, it's cool, everything's good, that's great to feel that because then you feel like you're off the hook and you're not necessarily as guilty as you really should be in some ways. So this isn't a fun thing to think about, but I'm pretty sure everybody in the room has some situation in their past that this came up because we're not perfect and we can't always be perfect to everybody around us. So let's pray, and while I pray, the worship team can come up, and we'll start our worship set, and then I'll come back up and finish some things off. Yes, Jason, that means you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for what you have done for us in sacrificing your son, the perfect perfect one in the universe and his shed blood is what has given us the reconciliation that we desired when we repented Lord and you have extended all of this grace and you have made this all possible because we could never do it on our own and we praise you for that Lord I pray that you would help us to remember that we are in a community together and these are our brothers and sisters that you have brought into our lives through your sovereign control, Lord, over everything. Your will has brought these group of people into each other's lives here at Aletheia Church, and you've brought other people into lives at other churches, Lord, and they have their body that is fit together to do your will, and we have our body, and I pray that you would help us in our relationships with each other, that A, they would be deep enough relationships that we can love one another deep enough that we can hurt each other. And that when we do that, Lord, we ask for your grace and your mercy. So help us to dwell and think about that process and think about some of the things that we have done in our own lives and not let us forget and pretend those things didn't happen or ignore them because they're uncomfortable. Help us help that feeling in our hearts keep us in a place of being better toward our brothers and sisters, in a place of not saying and doing things that would bring up those same problems again, Lord. So we thank you for this time of worship. We thank you for the skill of those that are going to play and lead us in worship, Lord, and sing. And we pray that our hearts would be moved by this. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I'm going to jump ahead, cheat a little bit, because someone else is probably going to preach this next passage that deals with this particular issue. This passage is transitory, like I said, and it gives us a glimpse of the long-suffering God working out a redemptive story. And in this case, we see a small redemptive story between Joseph and his brothers. But this is in the context of a larger redemptive story. This is a layer of one story on top of a bigger story, on top of a bigger story, because this family that God is working this out in right now is the one that thousands of years later, Jesus Christ will come through. So this story, these storied layers all go together. So you have the small in the large. And the culmination of this drama does not finalize until years later. It's recorded in Genesis 50 
on Jacob's death. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they know they did the evil, right? This is like, dad's dead and now maybe Joseph's gonna get revenge and maybe the only reason he didn't was because dad was alive. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. So they asked for forgiveness. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So this is the example, and we actually get to see the restoration come about later on in the story. And this is, why, why do we have this? Why did God preserve this word for us? Why do we have all of these scriptures where God says, here, read this, understand it. When when the prophets wrote these things and when the apostles wrote the words that they wrote, did they think, did they even fathom that 2,000 plus years later we'd be reading these words and studying them? Probably not. But God preserved this for us because our stories in our lives are overlaid on something larger and that's our relationship with Christ. And when we come to Christ, we're finally aware of our own sin in our lives, which we may not have been really that aware of before. And this comes to the word repent, repentance. Repent means what? To turn and go in the other direction. When you ask a person in your life to forgive you, they are assuming you're not gonna do it again. Right? You don't have to actually say that. We often do. It's like we're begging for forgiveness. We're like, I won't do it again, I promise. I'm so sorry. Well, if you want me to forgive you, I'm assuming you're not going to do it again. And that's what repentance is. In the scripture, God is saying, you're going to repent of your sin. You're going to give, take that, accept that sacrifice of Christ to get forgiven. And you're going to go in the other direction. You're not going to dwell and live in your sin. In Isaiah, it says, and they sang a new song saying, I'm sorry, this is Revelation 5.9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The blood of Christ did that. In Isaiah 53.3 it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, even or, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We are like sheep. We all 
like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So we see his blood is what saves us, and he took our punishment on him. But when we, we John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But the world's too big for us to fathom. It's like when someone says, that's a billion dollars. I can't really grasp a billion dollars. And I can't really grasp the whole world. It's too big. It's not personal enough. We know it's the truth. God loved the whole world. But what does that do for me? So Jesus brings it home and lets us see that, no, in fact, it does mean you individually, not this generic world. It's you. And in Matthew he's 13, he says, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. We must be like children. What does that mean? It means in our sincerity and our trust. That's what being like a little child is. I remember when my son was small and he used to just get into where he could walk and he could run and he would climb up on the couch or a coffee table and if he could see me anywhere in his line of sight, he would just leap. And it was my job to run across the room and dive and catch my son. But he had no, it was 100% trust. He's like, Dad's going to catch me. No problem. Here we go. <laughs> and eventually, it's like, you can't do that anymore, son. You're too big. God doesn't do that to us. He always can do that for us. He can catch us. So that's what it means to be little children. And in another part in Matthew, in chapter 18, it says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he also tells us in Matthew 10, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered even mine. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus, through his ministry on earth, made it personal for us individually so that we have to, it, it's not, it's, it is corporate and it's not corporate. God saves the whole world. God makes these, this church, this corporation right here, is something God has knit together a specific and unique thing. And each one of us, he works the relationships in our lives. I, never, I would never have to ask anyone for forgiveness if the rest of you all weren't here. That's the problem, people. And no one would have to you know, ask me for forgiveness if they didn't wrong me. This is what God has put together. This is what he has made. And although individually you do have to repent and ask Jesus to save you, then you have a community that you have to work in and you have to be willing to repent 
and willing to accept other people's repentance. And then God uses that as a corporate thing to go do things in the world for him, to save people. People, again, it, begin, it becomes bigger. You're saving, God saves an individual person, but it becomes a church in Angol, India, or in Nicaragua that we support and we love and we go together with. We are all working this together, and God's doing it all over the world. And it all starts with admitting that you need forgiveness and seeking forgiveness and dwelling on what you did wrong. So it all, all the way up and down the stack, that's where we're at in life. He's our pattern, and the church is our community and family. So as you take communion and you remember what Christ did, dwell on these things. Think about it. Think about where your heart is. Think about, do you feel cold and hard toward people or some people or all people? Think about it. Dwell on it. So let's take communion together. Let's continue to worship and praise, praise God. We have a representative from the ladies' ministry over here if you want to pray. I will be over here on the side. Joel is floating around. Johnny's floating around. Manny's, you know. Come pray with us. Or just tap the person next to you and ask them to pray for you. If you need prayer, if you want to talk about anything related to this, come see one of us. So let's worship.